0: Now on to the podcast. Support for this episode is brought to you by the Headset app. Are you looking for a simple solution for coach to catcher communication for the season that doesn't require bulky hardware in the dugout? Traditional communication gear can be a headache to set up and carry from game to game. But what if there's a game-changing solution? Introducing the Headset app. Your new MVP in communication for coaches and catchers. Enjoy crystal clear Ultra HD audio without the Major League price tag. It's compatible with any Bluetooth headset or earbuds. Say goodbye to tangled wires and extra hardware. Ready to step up to the plate? Download the headset app for free today. Getting started is as easy as a home run trot. Create your account, invite your team, and start calling pitches. The headset app is ready for download in the App Store and on Google Play. Swing for the fences and download today to get a five-day free trial. And for a limited time, use abca 24 when you buy your pass for next season and save 10%. Find out more at theheadsetapp.com. As we keep rolling for convention week, this week's ABCA podcast guest is the Marines' captain, Alexander Goetz. Goetz was born in Denver, Colorado, where he graduated from Regis Jesuit High School. Goetz was a four-year varsity letter winner in baseball. Goetz played baseball at Princeton University and was the 2011 Ivy League Closer of the Year. After graduation, Getz reported to Officer Candidate School and completed the 10 week Officer Candidate course and was then assigned to the MOS of 1802 Tank Officer at the Basic School, where he received further training at Armor Basic Officer Leader Course in Fort Benning, Georgia. Getz served as the Marine Officer Instructor of the Auburn Tuskegee NROTC Consortium and has his master's degree in sports coaching. Currently, Getz lives in Charlotte, North Carolina and works with Tread Athletics. Marines sponsored our Barnstormers events this fall. The Marines will also be at the convention sponsor our rookie mentorship meeting, have an expo theater presentation, and are available to talk on their campus initiative in Booth 1029. Let's welcome Captain Alexander Getz to the podcast. All right, here with Captain Alex Getz, uh, Colorado native, uh, graduated from Jesuit High School but played at Princeton, uh, tank officer in the Marines as a Marine officer instructor in Tuskegee but also works for tread athletics. What I miss on that captain gets.
1: Yeah. So the only, I mean, that's all accurate. Totally hundred percent that that job title was my previous assignment when I was stationed in Alabama. So I currently wo- live and work in Charlotte, North Carolina. I do work at tread athletics and I'm a recruiting support officer attached to the recruiting station here in Charlotte, helping out the recruiting mission kind of in any way that I can. Is that kind
0: of how it's laid out with the Marines where you kind of check one box off where you're working and then it moves on to the next thing for y'all?
1: Yeah, I would say the lifespan of most assignments in the military are three years at a time. And so like that Marine officer instructor one was what I did from 2019 to 2022. Uh, And then 2022, I moved up to Charlotte, transitioned from active duty into the reserves. And so that's kind of the I'll be doing this. I've done it for a year and a half and I'll do it for another 18 months, give or take.
0: Is that what is that your obligation then in the reserves?
1: the it it goes kind of one contract to another sort of one assignment to another the reserves are a much more flexible permissive atmosphere active duty like hey you're here for three years and you're not going anywhere reserves there's a lot more lateral mobility depending on kind of your career aspirations what's happening in your civilian career there's a lot more mobility to it
0: yeah and i'm great to grateful to have met you this fall on barnstormers i mean what was your kind of first interaction with everything that we did this fall
1: Yeah. So this fall, I think I can't remember where it might have been in September ish. There was a barnstormer clinic up at UNC Charlotte um, and I got the invitation. I live in Charlotte, so it was a super easy mix to make my way up there. Um, and it was an awesome chance to be on a baseball field, talking to baseball coaches. And once again, this partnership between the Marine Corps and the ABCA, really trying to find a way to kind of spread some of the message a little bit, but then also really try to show to coaches how there are so many similar values between the Marine Corps and in baseball. And I just kind of happen to be an unusual proof source where my life kind of resides at the intersection between those two institutions.
0: Yeah. And y'all did a webinar last week too. So obviously people got to see last week as well. And, and you know, yep. how, what'd you feel about the webinar?
1: webinar went pretty well. I mean, I hope everybody enjoyed it. It was a similar format to what I presented on at, at the Barnstormer Clinic at UNC Charlotte. Um, a digital discussion sometimes can be a little bit less interactive just by very nature of, you know, there was a Zoom chat that people were typing questions into. But overall, again, I think it went pretty well. There were a couple of people who posted some nice feedback in the chat that they had a good experience and it was worth logging in for. So I think that video is now live or will be at some point and hopefully it's value yeah, it, added. It's for up any- now for
0: anybody that wants to watch it. You can go back on the website and watch it for anybody that hasn't seen it yet. So when were you introduced to baseball?
1: My dad played baseball his whole life. Um, through college, he was drafted out of high school, and then he played. So I can—I I, my earliest memories are like throwing a rolled-up sock ball in my hallway upstairs, and that was my dad kind of teaching me like basic fundamentals and mechanics of throwing. So I started early on, four or five years old, started playing t-ball, and then it was rolled all the way from you know middle school, high school, college. Uh, so then I played all the way through my graduation and senior year. Did you always know you were going to go to Jesuit? No, actually, that was kind of a counter. So the, my my district school growing up in Denver uh, was a local public school that frankly just wasn't as high caliber athletic program, as well as maybe it wasn't quite the academic fit that I was looking for. And so Regis Jesuit High School is about 30 minutes away from me, but it was a good mix of I don't come from a Catholic background. So the Jesuit was kind of just a byproduct of it had a really good baseball program. And it also was a higher caliber academic school. So it just kind of fit those needs with what I was looking for and kind of the direction that I saw my life heading. Um, so, yeah, again, you know, four years of a Jesuit high school was certainly not what I anticipated that I would do if you would have asked me in sixth, seventh or eighth grade. But looking back on it, a very valuable experience and kind of learned a lot in a, in a variety of different arenas, kind of in my own personal life. Was Ivy League always going to be the goal for you? Oh, no. Hard now. Um, initially, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I'd never even dreamt of it. Uh, my dad and my mom, my parents, they uh, met at Harvard. So my dad played baseball at Harvard. But by association, I think some kids like whatever their parents do, they want to do the opposite. Um, so I always had aspirations to go play baseball somewhere in California, um, whether that be Stanford, whether that be like any school out there or a smaller school. But I figured like, hey, get to go play baseball in California. It's a little bit closer to Colorado. So that was where like my that was where my search was kind of funneled. And then my high school pitching coach played in the professionals with my head coach at Princeton. So they had that connection there. And so, well, yeah, Scott Bradley. And so my high school pitching coach asked me at some point, like, had you ever considered an Ivy League? And I said, no, why would I? Like, I'm going to go to California. That's where I'm headed. Um, but, you know, he, he knew my ACT test score. He knew that I could play. He knew that I was a good student. So he made a phone call. And then certainly kind of like that opportunity was kind of presented to go take a visit to the school. Uh, I mean, love the campus, got to meet a lot of the guys, had a good experience there. And then once you've got an invitation from an Ivy League school to go attend there, that's a difficult conversation to say no to. So it just kind of organically evolved that way. But certainly I never thought that I would have go to play baseball in New Jersey for four years. Was it hard on your parents that you didn't go to Harvard? No, I don't think so. I don't think either one of them held any bad blood or anything like that. There might have been early on a couple jokes about that, but there was nothing in the serious or anything like that now. And you played multiple positions in high
0: school, but was it always going to be as a pitcher going to college?
1: Yeah, I think I, I was best recruited um, as a pitcher coming out of senior year of high school. I was throwing, you know, 88 to 90, 91, somewhere in there. And so that was kind of a range of maybe probably a more competitive or a more competitive. Um, What's the word I'm thinking of? Like, you know, uh, prospect kind of like moving forward. There might have been more growth there. Enjoyed playing everything at yeah, high school. I played center field um, shorts. I was a shortstop my freshman, sophomore, junior and then senior. I played center field and pitched um, when I when I got to Princeton. Coach Bradley asked me, do you want to try to hit? Do you want to play both ways? Like, What do you want to do? And at the time, I certainly like I made the decision. I would rather be a pitcher only and really prioritize my development there. Looking back, I may have gone, you know, looking back, I might do is uh, uh, change the decision and play, you know, swing the bat a little bit just because it gives you some other component to focus on and something else to break up the monotony. But yeah, back then, that was that choice was made by me. And, and you are built, I mean, you're built like a Division One pitcher. Uh, so right now, I'm 6'2", 200, give or take. And so freshman year, I was 6'2", but less about 30, 35 pounds. I showed up to campus about 170, give or take. So thin and wiry, which I guess is projectable because it's a tall frame, long levers, maybe you can throw hard. Uh, and then I slowly filled out my frame kind of as I got, you know, just as you progress. And what did you learn from Coach Bradley? I mean, obviously that's a good one to go
0: play for with his history in in professional baseball.
1: Yeah, Coach Bradley certainly. I mean, he's a great resource to have, um, and I think he ran the program a lot. Like at least from what I hear from other guys, like a lot like a major league program is run where there's kind of like pretty loose parameters um, in terms of you know you know you know what you need to get done for the day. Like show up to the ballpark, get your work in, and head back. To be fair, we also have a pretty heavy academic load. So, I mean, whereas I hear other different programs and Power 5 conferences where they've got practice for eight hours a day, if we were at the field for eight hours a day, like our grades would really start to suffer. And we really have to try to manage those two pretty carefully. So um, great experience. Again, certainly, like we had everything that we needed in terms of the resources and the facilities and everything. And then, yeah, practice would be, you know, show up and get your work in and head back because he trusted that as long as we were getting our work in, we also have academic responsibilities to maintain. So he was very flexible with that. I mean, how was your freshman year academically? (laughs) Yeah, I will say that it's very fair that a lot of us at Princeton, like we all came from high schools where we probably had good grades and were towards the top of the class academically to even find ourselves at Princeton. But there was some self-doubt amongst the athletes in general. Like, do we really belong here? Because you look at some of the other people in the freshman class and the caliber of what they're doing, valedictorians and these really, really, you know, highly powered academic minds. And so there was some imposter syndrome of like, man, like, did we sneak in here? Like, was this an accident? Am I going to make it here academically? Uh, I senior year of high school, I took a psychology elective, found the topic very interesting. So I figured I was going to study psychology in college when well, my freshman fall was when I took psychology 101, like a big lecture, a couple hundred people in there. And I got a C in it. I think I got a C plus. It was the first C I've ever gotten in my life, the only C I've ever gotten in my life. And so I had a real big like eyes wide open moment like, oh, crap. I thought this was going to be my major. I just took the easiest class and I got to see, what am I doing here? But I certainly like, once you get your feet on the ground a little bit and you figure out how to manage your workload and kind of how to go about prioritizing your academic work, things smooth out. And fortunately, like that was the only C that I got and things progressed better from there. And you stayed in psych? I did, yep. Stay in there, declared my sophomore year and then graduated. Minus psych as well. Oh, cool. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed the topic. I
0: mean, what were some of your favorite psych classes at Princeton?
1: I took an abnormal psychology. I thought that one was pretty interesting. Um, And then one that I really took the most Fulfillment out of was it was called the brain It was like a 200 level psychology class and it was Really in depth about like the neurology And the components of the brain it was a ton Of memorization to be fair it was very like In depth and detailed but I took a lot of Like I really enjoyed the fact that there is and Still it there was and still is so much about the Brain that's unknown that people are still Researching and discovering and learning about so Understanding the different parts you know my brain Works kind of I like to see like Gears fit together and I like when I can kind of understand The flow of how things work so when I got to understand my own brain just a little bit better to figure out how things kind of connect that was a very satisfying class as well for sure and then how did you get to the marines my senior year of college um that's when a lot of us have to very seriously ask ourselves like hey what are we going to do after we graduate um there were a few on the guy few guys on the team who knew they were viable draft prospects either as a pitcher or position player so they were having more serious dialogues with major league organizations There's a fair majority of us who know that professional baseball is not the route that we're headed. Um, And it's probably pretty fair to say the majority of Ivy League graduates, or at least Princeton graduates for that matter, like make their way into Manhattan, whether it be investment banking, whether it be finance, whether it be consulting, like that's the traditional trajectory of a lot of Ivy League guys who head that way. Um, Both my parents did that. They worked in Manhattan for a period of time after graduating from Harvard. And so I heard a little bit about their experiences and my mom really liked it. My dad really didn't like it. So there's a little bit of pros and cons. I think I just knew, frankly, that, you know, heading straight into Manhattan wasn't what the right fit for me. And it certainly wasn't what I was looking for at that time. I had always loosely been interested in the military, even in high school. I just had like had some draw to it. I don't come from a military family whatsoever. Something about it appealed to me. um, But in high school at the time, baseball was number one priority. Well, then fast forward four years as college is concluding. And I start to think a little bit more seriously about it. And, uh, you know, I guess kind of the decision at that point was I'm As young and as physically fit as I'm ever going to be, I was 21, 22 at the time, like I already have my degree. So at least I kind of got that under my belt. Uh, If there's a time to do it, like it's probably now or never. And so I kind of made the leap of faith. I wasn't totally sure which branch I was going to meet with. I think I met with all of them, quite frankly. Um, But then the Marine Corps just kind of appealed to me. And it sort of um, it offered the challenge that I was really looking for at the time. Um, and so then, yeah, made the, made the choice, signed the papers and kind of started and jumped in two feet first. I mean, for, for someone from the outside looking
0: in and that doesn't really know the differences between the different branches, what, what drew you to the Marines maybe as opposed to some of the other branches?
1: That's a really good question too. And I think that's fair to say that like a lot of people on the outside looking in may not have a good understanding of like what differentiates one branch from the other, both from like a service component and like, what is your day to day lifestyle going to be? Um, I will say this again, very broadly put, the Air Force is in the air, the Navy's in the water, the Army's on the ground. The Marine Corps does a little bit of all three. I think that's like a very oversimplified explanation, but good enough for here. When I met with different recruiters, um, you know, again, they all offered different things. Um, Some offered, you know, better quality of life. Some offered better duty stations. And quite frankly, and I don't remember the exact verbiage, but the Marine Corps recruiter basically said, hey, if you want the nice, cushy quality of life, like maybe you're in the wrong spot like we're going to give you a challenge and we are going to throw stuff at you that like you're going to have to work for it and it's not going to be given to you. You're going to have to earn it. Um, I can also recall my ex-girlfriend in college at the time, her dad was a Marine. He did four years as a radio operator. And so he was obviously someone who's experience that I wanted to learn from. And he, even, I even remember him mentioning saying like, hey, you know, if I were you, if I were to redo it, like I might consider the Air Force because it's going to be a lot more comfortable. It'll be a better fit for you. The Marines, they're going to they're gonna put you in the mud and they're going to make you work. And at the time I was like, yeah yeah that's what i want like give me some of that you know I'll, I'll take that so i think amongst the branches the marine corps it's the smallest branch so uh, therefore it has not better or worse just different physical standards um it's got typically on average the highest physical standards of any of the major branches less special forces um and so that like the 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 physical component of the marine corps certainly appealed to me and it just kind of like the values that it preached r- uh, relative to some of the other branches just aligned with who i am what i am and kind of what i wanted to aspire to be uh some yeah jump right in my dad was a marine as well so you know
0: okay then there you go with your baseball background with your psych background i think that actually you gravitate towards that type because i just think you're used to it you know with your psych background it's gonna be very broad based with your baseball background you just kind of get used to doing everything as a baseball person so i think the marines are a really good fit for that
1: I will say that when I went through Officer Candidate School and it was 10 weeks in Quantico, Virginia, and it was during the winter, uh, it was cold, it was miserable, you don't sleep a lot, you're running around, like it's, it's the experience that you're supposed to go through. Um, but I can distinctly remember thinking that like my experience as a student athlete directly prepared me for that because going through OCS, you got physical components, you got leadership evaluations, you've got academic grades, you're studying, you kind of have to concurrently prioritize multiple different things and find time throughout your day to make it all work. And so I can lo- I can remember looking left and right in the squad bang, seeing some of the other candidates who were all trying to earn our commission together, like scrambling and looking very frantic and frazzled. And for me, at least, it was kind of another run of the mill. Like, this is what you do. Like, yes, I'm a little bit tired and yes, I'm sore, but like I have a test tomorrow, so I have to study. That's not something I did for the first time in the Marine Corps. That's something I did for four years and frankly, for my entire life as a student athlete. Yeah. I mean, so what are some of your time management hacks to try to get through that? I would, I mean, I, I, I certainly haven't written a book on time management or anything. I will say that, like, mapping out my weeks is a very valuable thing, especially when I feel, fa- I, mean, I mean, I did this as recently as last week when I felt kind of overwhelmed with a number of different, either professional personal, you know, obligations that I have in my life. Just like sit down, write it out. And, like, once I put pen to paper and come up with a plan of, like, what day I plan to execute, what, things get a lot easier. Um, I wasn't this way pre the Marine Corps, but I certainly still like I wake up fairly early every day these days, just because like that is in a habit. I was never a morning person prior to joining, but I assume through repetition and years of waking up at 4.30, 5 a.m., 5.30 in the morning, like you just kind of, it stuck with me that boy, I, I, I very, um, highly value. I'll wake up if, you know, at this point I'm pretty used to it. If I get up at four 30 in the morning and I've got a couple hours of peace and quiet to get done, the couple main things that I need to get done, six 7 o'clock rolls around. And I may have already accomplished a couple major end items that I wanted to get done for that day. Uh, and I can go into the day feeling like I've already built some momentum up. Uh, so those would be the two things that I would say for anybody who's you know trying to prioritize time management is like write things down. It's one thing to have like a loose plan in your head. It's another thing to have like a a detailed plan on paper. And like actually follow it throughout the week. And then, you know, I know nobody likes a morning alarm clock. I get it. But certainly like once you like anything else with repetition, it becomes a habit, then a habit becomes a ritual. And then you'll find that a couple hours in the morning spread out over days and weeks and months and years, you can get a whole lot done. That's when I'm at my best. If I'm up at 430
0: in the morning, doesn't happen all the time. But when I'm on a consistent routine, if I get up at 430 in the morning, it just sets everything up. My week is much better. And that was something, absolutely the college coach. We always had to try to train our guys to do is like map your whole week out and our players that would do that they ended up handling it much better they were much better on the field they were much better academically and you know it doesn't have to be a lot but we always use that Sunday as kind of set up your entire week and if you can set up every day where your routine's pretty set you're gonna end up being in pretty good shape
1: yep I mean it's not complex it's certainly not super complicated it's it boring. just takes a, it's boring, it's, it's being, boring. It takes I say it all consistent- the time being great is boring being great. It is, it's doing this it being great and doing the being exceptional is not doing anything exceptionally different but it's doing those basic things at an exceptional consistency over and over and over again um so you're right There even still like again i'm up at 4 30 most mornings not every morning but most uh and there are periods where if i slip for a couple of days i can feel that i feel more disorganized you know if there's a week where i have a lot going on and i don't put pen to paper i can feel like i'm kind of scrambling a little bit more than i'm actually dictating my week versus the week dictating me so little things like that certainly make a big difference over time so when When you get through
0: basic, then do they give you options for that on what you're going to do next coming out of basic?
1: Yeah, the Marine Corps, the way they do it, this is another thing that makes the Marine Corps unique from other branches that appeal to me. Some other branches you can contract in on what specific job you're going to do once you've gotten through your initial training. And the Marine Corps doesn't work that way, at least for officers. Um, Once you get done with officer candidate school, you'll go to six months of follow-on training. It's called the basic school, also in Quantico, Virginia. And you get six months worth of basic infantry training. So it doesn't matter what job set you go into, whether you're a pilot, whether you're going to be an information officer or whatever, you have a basic understanding of infantry tactics and patrolling and moving through that process. From there, based off your class ranking during those six-month schools, you will compete amongst all of your peers for different job availabilities based off quota. So early on, when I remember talking to recruiters, recruiters are like, hey, I can't guarantee you a job. I can't guarantee that you're going to be an infantryman or that you're going to be a logistics officer or you're going to be a tank officer. Like, I don't know that. Like, you're a Marine first, and then you'll get whatever job the Marine Corps needs of you. If that's what you want, that's what we can offer you. But if you want to do something else, maybe there's another branch. And once again, the idea of, like, becoming a Marine... And then learning your job appealed to me like the identity portion really appealed to me versus like, oh, I only want to be a supply officer. So maybe I should go do that in the army because they can guarantee me that or something that sort of appealed to me in a different way as well.
0: Do you feel like that helps build more of a community because you've done what everybody else is going to do, even if that's not your job, you've done what they're going to do?
1: The Marine Corps very much prides itself on working together that everything the Marine Corps does, all the different capabilities, the platforms, everything, they are all there to support that basic rifle infantryman on the ground because that's kind of the thought process behind it and I think that's really what unifies the marine corps across a variety of different branches is we all share that common understanding even if that that's not our day job and even if that's not like our specific skill set we have some basic understanding of hey what is it like to be on the ground with an M16 or an M4 in your hand going on a patrol and you know what it's like to be down there with 80 pounds on your back and so then the whole marine corps works together to provide that guy the support that he or she may need um similarly I think that it's fair to say that because of that, like that unifies us. And so like that's a very foundational experience early on to have that to know, hey, like I know what it's like to be there a little bit. And you when you think back on OIF, OEF, the last ten to twenty years worth of conflict in the Middle East, a lot of Marine a lot of service members for that point, not even just Marines, who were in some of the most kinetic engagements, who some of the most valorous awards have been written about, they weren't trained infantrymen. They're a motor team mechanic who finds himself on a convoy, and they have to be able to know if they take contact, how to effectively operate with that weapon system. So I would absolutely agree that culturally that's a very strong and central point of the Marine Corps ethos is to understand what that infantryman is going through. And then whatever your actual trained skill set is, how can you provide the best support to that Marine who needs it?
0: Yeah. One of my favorite books is, is Leaders Eat Last. It's Simon ah, there you Panic, go yep. and that's a Marine – I love it
1: that the, the highest ranking official in the room eats last. Yep, definitely. I mean, I think that goes back to lead, the Marine Corps is a warfighting institution. In my experience, it's also a leadership institution, uh, both formally and informally. And hopefully there are plenty of good Marines still out there who are training others to become leaders and stuff like that. So leaders eating last is only one of the many leadership tenets and beliefs and ethos that the Marine Corps certainly prides itself on.
0: What are some of the other ones that maybe people don't know about?
1: I would say that leaders eating last is obviously a good one. Um, I think, you know, the Marine Corps has got 11 leadership principles. Um, they've got 14 leadership traits, right? There's a variety of different acronyms and things that you can keep on with uh, that kind of help you as you're going through their, their quiz questions when you're going through OCS. But to me, at least, when I think leadership, one of the 11 leadership principles is set the example. And that's super simple. That's super easy. But I've learned so much about leadership just by other Marines who I've worked with. Setting the example, another good one that I was told one time was, like, leaders live their lives in a fishbowl meaning that everything that you do is seen by someone. So like understanding that and making sure that like you don't really get the luxury from a leadership perspective of having a bad day, right? Like if you have a bad day, like you can take care of that on your own personal times. But when you're publicly facing, outwardly facing, the the responsibility and the burden of the leadership that you have is to make sure that like, you're always there serving your Marines and going a step further to try to make sure that the Marines are taken care of, have what they need. And once they're taken care of then, and only then, can you like take a step to be like, hey, how am I doing? Uh, easier said than done, but yeah.
0: And that equates well to coaching too. Cause coaching, I think if you're going to be a good coach, like you, you can't bring what's going on outside to the inside for your players. You just can't, that's kind of what I think, you sign up as a, as a coach.
1: Yeah. I think that's what you sign up for is any sort of perser- per, uh, person in a position of influence or anything is to um you're there to serve you know and servant leadership looks a lot different to a lot of other people i in my own this is just me talking now that like i was brought up and when you get indoctrinated in officer candidate school or boot camp there's a certain style of military discipline that is appropriate for the time and it's instant obedience to orders. And you have to have that because you have to be able to train from the onset, a level of combat readiness. that, if I say something, there may not be time in the most kinetic environments for me to explain why I'm saying it or to ask you to say, it's like, this needs to get done. And it's that instant obedience to orders and that rigid adherence to discipline that is incredibly valuable. All right. So that's what I got brought up on from a leadership perspective. I would offer that like that has a time and a place and that instant obedience to orders is incredibly valuable. And for the kinetic environment that you may find yourself in, you got to have that. But if you zoom out and all of a sudden, now you drop into a different context like coaching, then it's a really interesting question. Like, is that the right leadership style for that setting? And different people would have different questions to that answer. I would say that from a leadership perspective, like there's that power dynamic there of like, I say something, therefore you have to do, whether it be like rank and chain of command, whether it be on a baseball team, or it's like, I'm the coach, you're the player, I control your playing time. How does, the person in the position of influence leverage that power dynamic or how do they um decentralize that power dynamic that's a really really interesting leadership dialogue i would say that i spend time in my own life kind of reflecting on because coaching baseball now is i'll just be honest it's a less intense environment than like training Marines, how to operate a tank. It's just like the stakes are a little bit different. So how much do I change my leadership style to reflect the fact that what I'm doing now is a little bit permissive than what I was doing back then. But what I was doing back then, some of it still carries over to what I do now. So it's just like, it's a day by day. It's certainly a growing process for sure.
0: It's dependent on the team for the coach. Absolutely. Every year. I mean, you were in it, you played college baseball every, I'm sure those four years you played at Princeton, all four of those teams were different and definitely especially cuz you're bringing new new players in too but you guys are doing that as well with the Marines you're bringing new people in every year and into the organization
1: absolutely um, and I would say I think that looking back on teams whether it be like in like baseball teams in college or units that I've been a part with as a rule of thumb leaders create leaders And I think that that's something that I've certainly tried to embody in my own life is like, if you remove the leader, whether that be like the commander, whether that be the coach, and everybody else has no idea what to do, and they're just standing around looking at each other, you've done something wrong. You know what I mean? You should be able to remove yourself and the entire institution still function, you know? So keeping that in mind that the power dynamic of do what I say when I say it because I'm the one saying it, that can be enticing. But then also, can you leverage that? Can you empower other people to also lead in their own you know, respective slice of the pie, then things get, I mean, that's pretty dangerous when you got a lot of people who are kind of self managing and leading one another. I mean, how do you help people find common
0: bonds, you're going to deal with people from all different walks of life, you know, different parts of the country, how do you help people find a common bond that maybe don't have the same culture?
1: Yeah, I'd say that's another leadership principle of the 11 that there are is know your Marines and look out for their welfare. So you can substitute Marines and, you know, insert, you know, know your guys, know your athletes, know your baseball players. But I think leaders have to take some pretty deliberate effort to get to know their individual team members beyond just the uniform that they wear, whether it's a baseball uniform, whether it's a Marine Corps camo fatigues. Um, if you get to know the person underneath and understand them a little bit better, I think there's an opportunity to create connections. There's an opportunity to leverage that interpersonal leadership and communication to get to know one another beyond, hey, this is your job and do what I told you to do. Uh, and then once you start to get to know people a little bit, then all of a sudden, wow, like you, you want you it will surprise. It continues to surprise me how much maybe you have in common with people that you might not have expected. Or for that matter, you start to peel the onion back a little bit. And again, you really start to create some buying and some trust just by product of getting to know someone beyond like, hey, you're a third baseman, so it's feel ground balls. It's like, no, who are you, right? Like, where are you from? What is your story? That type of thing.
0: Do you feel like that helps with conflict resolution then too? I mean, it's high stress, especially basic training, you know, initially there's going to be stress and people don't always react correctly to stress. How do you help them kind of get through some of that conflict resolution and also know that there is healthy conflict as well?
1: Absolutely. And I firmly believe healthy conflict is like a pre is like a necessity to like coming up with the best plan. And so there's a couple things that I would say, number one, uh, you know, I think I think maybe having thick skin helps, you know, that's everybody's skin is going to be a little bit different thickness, at least at the onset. But understanding that somebody can disagree with you and that doesn't mean they hate you as a person. There's just like maybe there's a there's an idea that they thought was a little bit better. Um now, in my own life, in my own current setting, I certainly what I try to do is listen probably a little bit more than I speak. Uh, when other people have ideas, I'm certainly trying to absorb and at least understand their perspective. Um, and if there's a conflict that needs to be resolved, it's really keeping in mind that, like, hey, we're all on the same team here. You know, and again, I, I can think back to on active duty where like Marines are getting pissed at one another and we're having a lot of interpersonal conflicts. And the, every now and then you pause and you're like, guys, the enemy's out there. Like, what are we doing here fighting amongst ourselves this much? Same thing on a baseball team, right? Like, we are all wearing the same uniform. We're all moving in the same direction. So what the hell are we doing getting at each other's throats so much when, like, the other guys we're trying to beat, like, they're in a different uniform on the other side of the field, you know? So keeping that in mind as well, listening more than you speak, and then also, like, we're on the same team, guys. So let's not try to create artificial enemies where they don't need to be. Yeah, I, I still speak to teams, high school and college teams. That's one of
0: the things that I try to relay to them. I'm like, no matter what you have going on away from the field, once you get in between the white lines, then you're you're on the same team together, regardless of what what was going on away from that, because the common goal is to go out and try to win a, a baseball game.
1: Easier said than done, but easy, yes, that's the idea.
0: Yeah, Fair enough. Yeah. You know, do you feel then that helps kind of deal with the adversity piece? Obviously the Marine, you you, you mentioned it, that what you guys do and what baseball coaches do, that's completely different stakes for you all. And so from an adversity standpoint and and understanding that piece, how do you kind of help the the Marines kind of get over that, that hump a little bit too with, with the stakes that they're dealing with?
1: Yeah, I think the stakes are a little bit different. I would agree with that. But I think that failure is an incredibly valuable teacher. Um, And so like in the military, especially baseball, baseball is going to make you fail plenty. Right. Anybody who's played the game knows that you are bound to fail and you're bound to go through slumps. So like a coach really doesn't have to orchestrate failure like it's going to happen inevitably in the Marine Corps. At least we certainly want to make sure that we are training our Marines and we're providing them opportunities to fail. Um, and, but fail without like a zero defect mentality, like, Oh, you made a mistake. So I'm going to shoot, you know, you're, you're done. You're a terrible Marine. Um, but making sure that in a controlled environment, like there's the opportunity for decision-making and there's failure and there's remediation, there's after action about how did it go and what could we have done better and how could we improve upon that for the next time? Similarly, again, baseball, I think the failure portion of the sport is inevitable, regardless of which side of the ball that you typically play on. But from a coaching perspective, I think creating an environment where that failure is not, it's not, well, nobody wants to create a team that fails. Right. So it's not like you're going to like high five people for failing, but making
0: learning. I try to reframe it for athletes as learning, you know? Yeah, definitely. You know, I I don't like the the term failure. I just think it's a learning opportunity. And is that where you have to have thick skin is in the after action review?
1: I think so. And I certainly hope that like thick skin is not just materialized like overnight. Thick skin happens over time, in my opinion. And so from a leader's perspective, the coach, the leader, leader, whatever, the more regularly that you engage with honest, candid feedback with your subordinates, Marines or baseball players, I think the skin inherently becomes a little bit thicker. I personally think that we spend a lot of time. We the, the royal we we spend a lot of time talking about people, but we spend a lot less time talking to people. And what I mean is like, if you've got a problem with someone, a teammate, a coach, whatever, you'll spend 98% of your time bitching about, excuse my language, complaining about that individual person to other people and getting frustrated and kind of growing resentment. But there's a lot less time, clearly, candidly, respectfully, doesn't have to be aggressive, but respectfully addressing the issue with that individual person. And because it doesn't happen that much, when it does happen, all the energy and the anger is pent up and it's boiled up. And then it comes through maybe a little bit more visceral reaction than it needs to. But from a coaching perspective, with your players. If you can have regular, candid, honest, clear feedback with your players, then players can have thick enough skin and grow some thickness over time to realize, hey, coach doesn't hate me, right? It's not about me. He's just saying I need to improve defensively in order to have a shot to play this year. So I think, you know, handling that adversity and having that conversations along the way regularly, the responsibility is on the coach to engage in those dialogues because you're the adult in the room and you should be having those dialogues regularly because the most important thing that you have on your baseball team are the individual players the most important asset the Marine Corps has are the individual Marines. And so you need to spend time providing clear feedback to your most important asset so that they can improve over time. And I
0: said this all fall to the coaches that were there when you guys were there is the military employs the most amount of uh, peak performance coaches in the world. And so there are some parallels to the stress that maybe an athlete goes to or stress that, 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 your guys candidates go through what are some of the best kind of high performance things that you write relay because if you're out on tour they're, they're not getting much sleep it's it's hard to eat you know how do you guys make all of that work
1: i would say uh you certainly have to take care of the whole marine right the whole baseball player i tell that with athletes now that baseball is what you do it is not who you are Um, And I did a bad job of that in my own life where like when I, when my identity, if I wasn't throwing as many strikes or if my velocity wasn't as high or my ERA started to climb a little bit, I somehow felt like I was less of a person overall. And because of that, like all of a sudden now, like across the board, not just in baseball, but in my own social life, my academics, everything starts to take a hit. So I certainly try to reinforce that with my current athletes. Balance is important, you know, and make sure that you have an opportunity beyond the playing field to take care of yourself. Go hang out with friends, go read a book, whatever it is you like to do, like prioritize that in your life as well. The other thing I would say, too, when it comes to peak performance in less than ideal circumstances is your training you know, and I think it's fair to say very few of us, we don't just magically rise to a new level of performance just because we hope that we do. You typically fall back to the lowest level of your training. So like however much you've practiced, however many repetitions you've had of fielding ground balls or PFPs or whatever it is you're respectively doing, like when you're tired, when you're stressed, when the stakes are on the line, you're going to fall back to what you've done a thousand times before. And same thing with Marines. When you're tired, cold, sleep deprived and hungry, you're not just going to like reach this new level automatically. You're going to fall back and default to what you've done in training training over and over again. So that's where the coaching and the repetition and the being consistent in the basics over time really pays dividends.
0: And that's what I try to relay to players too, as far as you've got to f- try to find healthy, productive getaways, mm-hmm. because if not, then at least alcohol and drugs for a lot of people is what you see. Sure. So you've got to try to find, so what are some of your healthy getaways when you're trying to get checked out and, and recharge? What are some of your healthy getaways?
1: Yeah, for me, again, I think like physical activity always helps staying healthy, working out, going for hikes. That's certainly one. Um, You know, I think I have found at least in recent years, like working with my hands is something that I really enjoy because it like it does require enough cognitive focus to like have to do something and like I have to be present and thinking about the activity. So like woodworking is something that I've gotten into recently and like bought a bunch of tools and do stuff with that. So I think it can take a variety of different forms. I would agree with you. There's a very big distinction between healthy outlets and less productive, less healthy outlets Um, for anybody, especially in the team setting who, you know, be careful around who you surround yourself with, because who you surround yourself with is going to dictate a lot of your daily activities and the decisions and the places you'll find yourself in. So um, if there are groups of guys who are doing good things, if there are guys or groups of guys who are doing, you know, not so good things, be careful who you associate with wouldn't be another one. But yeah, for me, at least I'd probably say that like getting my head away, but kind of not distracting, I would say, but Choosing an activity that requires some degree of physical activity and cognitive focus, shooting baskets would be another good one, just something to kind of get out there and move around.
0: What about you led the Marines to say, hey, you should be in a tank?
1: Ah, I don't know. That's an interesting question. So coming out of initial training, at least uh, there are six months of infantry training, like I mentioned earlier, and your class ranking will dictate. What job you get assigned to now as you're going through your training you can preference what jobs you want, but a preference is not a guarantee like the needs of the Marine Corps are going to supersede the the needs of Alex gets and the job availability is based on quotas of how many tank officers of the Marine Corps need how many infantry officers of the Marine Corps need so certain jobs are going to have more quotas available to them. And in my particular class, there was one tank spot available. The tank community in the Marine Corps is not that large, and they didn't have that much of a need for officers, at least in my class. So there was one spot. And, uh, you know, you get a chance to rank all of your jobs along the way, one all the way down to the bottom. And I kept putting tanks number one. Um, And everybody around me was like, you're crazy, man. Like, there's only one spot. Like, why are you going to put it? And I kept saying, you know, somebody's got to get it. So, like, why not give it a shot? And so I think that, like, that's kind of how that worked out for me. Um, Unbelievable experience. I obviously, or for me, when I joined the Marine Corps, I wanted to do something in the military that I felt that I would never get a chance to do in the civilian world ever. Some guys they do join they want to learn a skill set that will transfer them or translate into a three letter agency or CIA or FBI or anything like that and that nothing wrong with that at all for me at least i didn't i didn't have long term career aspirations to take the marine corps and filter it into another job it was i want to do something during this window of my life they would be and for me at least it was like big machines So tanks was one. Artillery was another one that I had high up on my list. I just, for whatever particular reason, wanted to be around big things that go boom. And uh, I was fortunate to get tanks and had a great time doing it.
0: So as an officer, how many how many people did you have underneath you then as an officer?
1: So you start off as a platoon commander and a tank platoon is four tanks and each tank has four Marines that make it go. So if you start off with four tanks and 16 total Marines, if you're lucky to have a full platoon, that's got everybody in there. Um, that's what you start off there. So I did that for about a year, a little over a year, probably about 14 months. Uh, and then the next position got promoted to was you were second in command of a tank company, which is about 14 tanks. And probably closer to like 70 or 80 Marines. Uh, and you're still operating and you're still moving around in tanks, still, you know, kind of shooting. Um, and then the, the next position that I got after that, um, slightly different role. But I was second in charge of a larger group of about 450 different Marines and sailors who were motor T, radio guys, uh, supply guys, admin guys. You kind of got like all of the um, all the supporting roles that kind of help the tanks do what they need to do. So then I got moved into that group and had a, a larger kind of um uh oversight perspective on like that role but yeah so as far as the tank stuff goes um it's fair to say that like being being a platoon commander and being in charge of four tanks and 16 marines that's your guys that's your group and that you do all the training together all the maintenance together uh it was a good time
0: for sure so for your missions then how much pre-planning goes into that before you head out
1: Yeah, everybody's got the role. And I think a lot of a lot of the mission planning, like from the officer's perspective, it's a lot of tactical planning and it's a lot of, hey, like, here's the scenario. Here's the brief. Like, how are we going to physically maneuver? How are we going to coordinate indirect fire and all of that? Like, kind of how did that look? Uh, for the Marines, again, they play an in- invaluable role. The amount of maintenance those, that goes into getting a tank to be able to go from point A to point B uh, is tremendous. And so the Marines, again, like I wouldn't have never been able to do my job effectively if the if the platoon as a whole wasn't taking care of the maintenance of a tank and making sure it was ready to roll. And then similarly, if they do all the maintenance, but I haven't done any of the planning and we get out there and I don't have a clue what's going on, I have failed them. So it's a very um, – the, the two roles complement each other very well, but a tremendous amount of planning and repetition and rehearsal – and thought goes into doing anything even before you turn the tank on like there's been a lot of work to get up to that point
0: what was the hottest temperatures you ever ran inside a tank
1: there is a temperature gauge on the inside of a tank that tells you exactly how hot it is because it relates to the ammunition temperature and so like you see it in there and so the hottest that i can remember one time my gunner was down in the turret and he's like hey it's 140 degrees down here and he's like, and I was like, no, it's not. And I climbed down in the tank and I take a look at it. And with my own two eyes, I, I, I witnessed 140 degrees. So whatever it is on the outside of a tank, you know, you can, if it's hot, you know, basically add 15 degrees to it on the inside. And if it's cold, subtract 15 degrees. Like there is no heat, well, there kind of is a heater, but there's no air conditioning in a tank. Um, so it, it was cooking, it was, it was hot on that day to say the least. And then did they recommend
0: that you do officer training after that?
1: My so I actually applied for the position that I got after my three years working on tanks. The vacancy to work as an ROTC instructor kind of came publicly available. Um, initially, I thought that I was only going to do four years in the Marine Corps and get out. That was kind of that was my plan early on. That was really the only extent that I saw myself in there. And a former boss of mine who I really respect, he called me and he said, "Hey, have you seen the list of schools that are available? I think you'd be really good at it." And I was kind of he and hon, like, "Well, I don't know. I think I'm going to get out or maybe go to grad school." And he's like, "Look, just apply. It's not." By send in an application if one of the schools selects you great they at least you create options for yourself if not no harm no foul um, so I applied and then I got uh, assigned to Auburn University Auburn and Tuskegee the two schools operate My under one umbrella.
0: Tuskegee.
1: Life. A lot of history in Tuskegee. Absolutely. yeah. And so, um, you know, I thought to myself, like, I, you know, never really spent a whole lot of time in Alabama. SEC football sounds pretty cool. Hey, why not? And so went there for three years. I met my wife there. I uh, had a great experience there. So I would say I was very fortunate to get that job, um, hang around the Marine Corps on active duty for a little while longer. It was a really good fit for me.
0: What are some other things that civilians probably need to hear about the Marines that maybe they don't know?
1: Ooh, there's a lot about the Marines. I think civilians don't know. And that's both a blessing and a curse. Um, I think more than anything, there's a misconception out there that, and when I talk to a lot of young kids today in my current capacity, sometimes I'll go to career fairs on college campuses or engage with local youth throughout the, you know, kind of the area, um, there's a misconception about the Marine Corps that like, hey, if you join the Marines, like you're going to war and like you're going to get shot at and you're going to be doing a lot of shooting. And I, I certainly am not trying to downplay that, like, obviously the possibility if you if you join the armed forces like that is a potential path that you may go down. There's nothing short of that. But there's a tremendous amount of Marines who, you know, they may never see combat and they still feel a very valuable role and they still provide a very valuable service to the Marine Corps. And if they stay chooses to get out after four years or eight years or whatever length of time, that's a right fit for them. They walk out having learned life skills. They walk out having been kind of like inherently instilled with values of discipline and work ethic, commitment, honor, courage, commitment, um, and a lot of benefits that will financially at least pay off for life as well. When you talk about the GI Bill, Veterans Home Loan, I mean, there are a variety of different things that like I don't think many kids are aware of because they're not at that stage in their life yet when they join. But I'll say in addition to the character and um, progression that you will find on, on, in the Marine Corps, there are a number of other Long term benefits that you'll walk away from as well. So I would certainly say that to anyone who's like, "Ah, I've never joined a good
0: example of that. My dad was a Marine during the Vietnam War and never got deployed. He was in California the entire time. And, uh, you know, dumb lucky just he never got deployed during the war.
1: Yeah, no two experiences are the same. Everybody's journey through the Marine Corps is a little bit different. But I would certainly say to anybody out there who thinks like, oh, the Marine Corps, that's not for me because of whatever stereotype you may have in mind about movies you've seen or commercials you see or something. There's a lot more. The Marine Corps is a lot bigger than just that role. um, And it's worth looking into. Best decision I ever made. And part of the reason you guys joined up
0: with us is because you are doing initiatives where Marines go on campus. Talk a little bit more about that program for coaches that are listening in that maybe have an interest with having you guys come on campus.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the Marine Corps certainly is trying to make sure that we stay involved in the community at all levels, you know, across the country. The Marine Corps is unique relative to the other branches that there is at least one Marine recruiter assigned to every single zip code nationwide. Other branches may do it a little bit differently and they may kind of like proportionally distribute more recruiters kind of in like the southern portion of the country where it typically is a little bit more military friendly. But no matter where you're located, there is a Marine assigned to your zip code who is responsible for engaging with youth in the area and trying to, you know, create the opportunities for them to become Marines. And so part of this partnership is making sure that, you know, proof sources who have a little bit of experience in the military and baseball like me have an opportunity to engage with coaches and let them know that, hey, these are opportunities that, you know, could be done with you in your respective areas area recruiters oftentimes they love to come out and do leadership talks or they certainly will come out and do like physical challenges with your guys um you know if you, you can very easily reach out to the marines in your area uh, um and set that up and kind of at your schedule and they would love to come out and kind of do that activity for you and then talk a little bit about you know what the marine corps has to offer what makes it unique um i think in today's day and age especially tiktok's instagram and social media like maybe the military isn't um The foremost path that a lot of young youth like are drawn to. Um, But part of this partnership is to try to speak with coaches and make them aware, hey, there are Marines in your area who would love to come engage with your athletes. You have to say, like, we'll do it on your terms. Just want to make sure that dialogue is at least a possibility to open up.
0: How'd you get linked up with Tread?
1: That, I mean, I cold, I applied pretty cold. I had been following the CEO of, or the the president of Tread. You know, he's been posting videos on social media for, for years time. as the company. Yeah, as, as the company's grown. And so at some point in active duty, again, I kind of just like found his profile and sort of followed him and just said, hey, here's a guy who seems like he's smart at baseball. And as I was transitioning away from active duty and as I, my wife and I looked towards what the future would hold. I always thought that I wanted to come back to baseball. I just didn't know what form that would take at the time. Uh, so I applied to Tread when I found out it was in Charlotte, North Carolina. We looked at each other and said, hey, Charlotte, like that seems pretty cool. Like we could see ourselves there. And so it just kind of organically progressed from there. Uh, it's been great to get back in baseball. It's been great to learn. I mean, a lot has changed in baseball over the last eight to ten years. Those yeah, are what, what was the ten-
0: eye-opening thing? I mean, you'd been out of it for a while. You step in that facility and and they're, I mean, they're on the cutting edge. We have a bunch of facilities out there. They're kind of the cutting edge of training now. What were some of the things that they were doing that you, you had not seen before?
1: I mean, everything yeah. <laughs> that they were doing was something that I hadn't seen before. I certainly like the game is still the same. The mound is still 60 feet away. The bases are 90 feet apart but like player development and the and the level of detail and the specificity behind player development that is facilitated now by technology that wasn't around or that we didn't have access to when i was playing and so you come back and all of a sudden like it's just it's substantiating all these things like hey that guy's fastball really jumps at you well no now we know that it's like hey it's got a little bit more vertical break than the next guy or the vertical approach angle looks a little bit different so i think it's been relearning a new language to describe the old things that i was always just like anybody who's played has understood that has certainly been um it I mean it's been great though because you can be a lot more detailed with your coaching versus you might just use it's like oh your curveball's not very good well now you can get a lot more granular with it and think to yourself like how good is your curveball how can we make it better
0: yeah what are some things like for you as you're getting in there you're like I wish I would have had that as a player <sighs>
1: Ooh, as a player, it's a double edged sword because too much information can be a bad thing. Right. It's like paralysis by analysis. Where you can, and I think to myself, if I would have had access to all the technology and all the available information that like athletes here at Tread currently have, um, I may have overwhelmed myself. I, I, I just know I, who too. I was as a player. Me, too, because I, right, I was an overthinker
0: anyway. And so, I, yeah, I, I was I an overthinker it, without all this stuff. A, yeah, I needed to dummy things down.
1: I think, though, that, again, basic TrackMan reports, if you have access to a TrackMan, it just it, it quantifies your performance, especially from a pitching standpoint. It quantifies what you do well. It quantifies what you don't do as well. And it gives you much more objective data points to work on. And I think from there, once you have that objective report, you can create a much more specific player development plan for the athlete. Not just, you know, what like me in college thinking, hey, I don't think my curveball is very good, but like, why do I why don't I think it's very good? How does it need to get better? how do I improve it now over time with you have that information, you can get a little bit more detailed in terms of what you want to work on and how you want to work on it. Do you have
0: a fail forward moment? Do you have something you thought was going to set you back, but looking back now, it, uh, you feel like it helped you move forward?
1: I think that, um, coming back to baseball again, with everything that's changed was certainly a humbling experience to kind of like learn how much you don't know. And that's fair to say. Um, but I I'd like to believe that the Marine Corps also helped out with that, that when I joined the Marine Corps, for some reason, I felt that like my well, yeah, Ivy you league degree how to drive going- a tank. I mean, I, absolutely. I you, I you learn as you go. Right. Um, I certainly had some misperception that like my Ivy League degree was going to matter for some way, shape or form. It doesn't. You know what I mean? Nobody cares where you went to school. They care. Are you good at your job? Can you perform in the role with which you're assigned? And so that required a lot of very humble questionings. And there were a lot of Marines who I outranked them. They're much younger than me. They're less experienced, but they know something technical on the tank that I've just never been trained on because that's not necessarily like my primary job. But so I had a lot of experience in a good way, like asking questions and being saying, hey, I don't know about this. Can you teach me? And so I think that level of humility that I was kind of brought up on in the Marine Corps on a tank has also translated to baseball. Where like, hey, I don't know how to read this report. Can you teach me? I don't know how to operate this piece of technology. Can you show me? And again, once you show me, I'd like to believe that like once I'm shown the ropes once or twice, like I'll pick it up on my own time. But it certainly helps to be able to ask for help when you need it.
0: I have to ask questions out loud. I think that's how i learn and and usually i'll come to the answer by asking questions so i do i'm like hey this might be a dumb question but i'm going to ask it and then maybe i'll come to the answer myself but it's almost like i got to speak that question into existence to be able to kind of work through what the answer might be to that question
1: absolutely and again i certainly always encourage my marines hey please don't suffer in silence like if you have a question that you think we can like shave down some time on ask right and so i certainly in my own life instead of suffering experience Absolutely. Right. I certainly try to find a lot of answers on my own. I think it's it's good to be self-sufficient and to be resourceful. But in the same token, if I can ask this guy over here who's been doing this for five years, how does this work? Maybe I can get to my end goal a little bit quicker. Do you
0: have any evening routines then? I know you get most of your routines knocked out in the morning. Are you working out in the morning
1: then? Are you? I definitely work out in the mornings. Yeah, up early, get done what I need to get done. Certainly w- try to work out four or five days a week before work. And, you know, I still have physical fitness requirements, maintaining the reserve. So I do what I can to make sure that I'm, you know, keep maintaining that level of fitness. When I go home, and I think that for me at least, like, um, a big thing about my transition away from active duty was to try to find some balance uh, and whatever that means for the person is very context dependent. But um, when I go home, I try to leave work at work. Um, and because I, I I chose this path and I put myself off of active duty into the reserves because I want to go home and be present with a wife. I want to go home to actually kind of have other time to do other endeavors, other areas, and kind of be able to be maybe a little bit more multifaceted because for three, especially those three years when I was on tanks, I'd be up at 3.30 every single day and I'd stay on base until about nine o'clock at night. I'd come home, I'd nap for six hours and I'd do it again. And that there was no balance there. And that was fine because that's what I wanted for the time, but that's not sustainable in the long run. So I'm certainly kind of pivoting to try to create a life and a flow that's a little bit better balanced kind of from sunup to sundown. Any sleep hacks that you learned? I I wouldn't say sleep hacks per se. I will just say that if you wake up early enough, you won't have problems falling asleep. That's for me, at least like if I'm up at 434 or five days a week, I promise that like when my head hits the pillow, I'm gone. Um, So I sleep pretty well most of the time because, you know, I guess just that's the schedule that I've created for myself. So your fitness test, what do you still fitness test wise? What do you still have
0: to to test on or, or show that you're maintaining fitness?
1: Yeah, so twi- the Marine Corps has two different physical fitness tests right now, one that you take in the first half of the year and a different one that you take in the second half of the year. Both of those scores are still irrelevant towards promotion in the reserves and just to kind of show where you're at. Uh, the, one of the tests is a timed three-mile run, a max set of pull-ups, and a how long can you hold a plank for? So it's a little bit of upper body, anaerobic endurance, and then, excuse me, aerobic endurance and then core. So that's one. And then the other one, they call it a combat fitness test. It's a little bit more mobile. You're wearing a uniform. Um, one of them is like an 880 sprint, an 880 knee Meter sprint. One of them is um, how many times can you pick up a 30-pound ammo can and lift it overhead in a two-minute time frame. And then another one is a little bit more kind of like a, I won't call it an obstacle course, but it's a little bit more agility-based. Where like you're low crawling, you're zigzagging around cones, you pick up a buddy and you buddy carry him and run him back. Like a little bit more agile. So I have to do both of those tests annually. Um, and so I, you know, making sure that I maintain enough strength, mobility, flexibility, fitness to be able to stay competitive and to get competitive scores on those. That's kind of what I focus on. And it shows that you care, correct? Yeah, I think so. I, I think mean, there's I, a lot I of Marines who- when
0: you look at so on social, like people are going to be like, "Well, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that." I'm like, "Well, some of it is just showing that you're going to put the effort in and that you care,"
1: correct? And I mean, your score on those fitness tests is not something you just magically do that day. It's a product of the consistency of the work that you've done all year round. You know, so. Um, I certainly think that you know it doesn't. You're not going to climb a mountain overnight, but right, if you do it a couple steps at a time, you know you'll get there when you get there. So, so for that reason, build they get up then for like somebody
0: that's trying to get into it. Do they have like a step by step plan to get built to that, or is it just go after it?
1: There are a number of different plans out there. You could Google like how to get ready for the Marine Corps, how to get ready for OCS or anything like that. And so certainly there are a bunch of different functional components, whether it be your upper body strength, whether it be your aerobic endurance, whether it be your hiking, right? So if you've never put on 50 pounds on your back and put on a pair of boots, you probably should do that before you join um, so that your feet can get accustomed to it. Your heels can get accustomed to it. Like there's a number of different physical preparation programs for anybody who's interested in. Um, I think I probably did some of those programs, but by and large, like You know, the only way that you're going to get better at running and pull ups is to go run and to go do pull ups. Not the only way, but that's an oversimplified answer. Yeah.
0: What are some final thoughts before I let you go?
1: Uh, Final thoughts for me. Again, I appreciate being here. I just like I find myself I consider myself very fortunate that pretty much everything that I have in this world is due to either baseball or the Marine Corps. Uh, it's fair to say that that has brought me kind of where I've been and who I've met and the places that I continue to go. And so I'm very fortunate. And again, part of this partnership, I find myself at this intersection of these roads. It kind of puts me right at the center of it. Um, And so, yeah, you know, I'm certainly very grateful for the opportunity to serve and continue serving uh, baseball. I'm very happy to be back in it. So um, one day at a time, I guess. Thanks for your time, Captain Getz. All right. Thank you.
0: Appreciate it. Thanks to Captain Getz for coming on the podcast and the Marines for sponsoring our Barnstormers events this fall. I have so much respect for all of our military branches. Thanks to everyone for their service. Thanks again to Jim Richardson, John Litchfield, Zach Hale, Matt West, and Antonio Walker in the ABC office for all the help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, abca.org, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at coachb__abca, or direct message me via the MyABC app. This is Ryan Brownley signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you.